Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where Alcoholics Anonymous members from around the world share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. If you've enjoyed the interviews on this podcast series, will you do a little service work by spreading the word about this rich and meaningful listening experience? This show is yet another helping hand of AA we can all extend to alcoholics everywhere. My guest on today's show is Patrick O., who was raised in a politically powerful family in a major East Coast city. His privileged upbringing in the public eye was belied by his alcoholic father's physically abusive and destructive behavior behind closed doors. That sacrosanct family secret tormented Patrick and his siblings as they were forced to put on the mask of a perfectly happy family to the outside world. Seeking relief from the terror and madness, Patrick started drinking as an adolescent. Ironically enough, the only relationship he ever enjoyed with his father was when he shared bouts of drinking when Patrick was in his early teens. But the booze-induced relationship with his father did little to blunt his father's severe disappointment when Patrick refused to follow the career track into the family's political machine. He left home after college and went to New York to pursue an acting career. But that particular fantasy was supplanted by a job and an eventual career as a talent agent for actors. Patrick, not unsurprisingly, found himself in an industry rife with alcohol, drugs, and lascivious behavior. From there, Patrick's career and drinking simultaneously skyrocketed until he crashed and burned in the end. Thoroughly beaten by alcohol, Patrick found his way into Alcoholics Anonymous in 1989, and he's still sober today. Working the steps and studying the big book in earnest with a gifted sponsor, Patrick's program has become a beacon of hope to others whom he led to AA. His involvement in AA is demonstrated on a regular basis, and many lives have been touched by his heartfelt and sincere desire to be of service to them all. There's plenty to learn from Patrick's experience and enthusiastic approach to the program, so please enjoy the next hour of AA Recovery Interviews with my friend and AA brother, Patrick O. I'm Patrick, and I'm an alcoholic. I really appreciate you doing the podcast with me today. You and I have been going to the same meeting by Zoom over in London, and I've met some of my favorite people from the United States out of the London meeting. That's a Zoom meeting these days, but have you actually been to that meeting live, and can you tell me a little about what that meeting was like? I can tell you quite a bit about it. That meeting had a warm seat for me since about 1993. Hmm. I had moved operations professionally to London mm -hmm. uh, in, in the work I was doing, and I immediately began to look for a London sponsor. Mm -hmm. You know, it's very important to have a sponsor as quickly as possible. Sure. Uh, yeah, and I became a citizen of London AA. I went to a number of, you know, meetings that you and I would be familiar with, mm -hmm. including, including the one we're talking about. Mm. You know, that meeting has its place in the fellowship. It's a big social meeting. Yeah. These meetings, every meeting has its place. Meetings need to be enjoyable yeah. on top of everything else for people to want to come back. Exactly. If it's just cut and dry, AA, read the book, go over the steps without any kind of further interaction of fellowship between the people, it can get pretty dull pretty quick. Yeah. The greatest value I think that I have to offer these days at 35 years is not to go through the 
newcomer's bag of tricks, but to tell you that, hey, I'm on the other end of this process and I am loving my life. Yeah, I get that. Your sobriety date is? January 9th, 1989. Okay, so you're coming up on your 35th birthday. I am. uh, A little after I get my 36-year chip. That's amazing. Now, did you come from an alcoholic family growing up? Yes. Yes. Our father was an alcoholic. Our mother was kind of driven mad, classic ACOA or victim or uh, Al-Anon victim. And yeah, there was a connection in our family I found uh, that I realized around eight or nine years old, maybe Mm -hmm. even younger, that there was a connection between violence and this other word, love. Mm -hmm. That's as perverse as our household was, that violence and love would be connected in some way. Love was always the word that excused what happened last night. Mm-hmm. Love was the excuse. Well, you know, this is what families do. All families are like this. Well, excuse me, but no, <laughs> that's not what all families are like. The horrendous screaming and yelling over the dinner table, uh, the violence of razors being held to throats, the violence of mothers being pushed down a set of stairs, of, uh, well, you get the idea. Um, I could go on. I come from the same kind of background, so I, I know exactly what you're, what you're talking about. Love was always the word that was excused all Well, yeah, and it's not dissimilar to what happens when people go into Codependence Anonymous or into Al-Anon, where they talk about the excuse word, the I'm sorry or the I love you. Have you ever stopped to think, Patrick, about what it would have been like had your mother had the opportunity to have something like Al-Anon when you were a kid? Oh, yes. It would have transformed her life. Did she ever attempted it? Well, like so many women I know and have met, including in our fellowship, uh, and this is not a criticism, it's just an observation, which is women don't trust other women. Right. And so she, my mother, did not trust the idea that she would go into a room and other women would start getting into her business. Uh, she's the other, why she never accepted therapy. Uh, the idea of therapy. She didn't trust. She let your father off the hook far too many times to help him, I would assume. Yeah, they were Irish Catholics, and they were completely bound up in that thing of the, that marriage is insoluble, that, that, that you might, you're married to the day you die, to the, whoever the hell you marry. Yeah. And it's just, it's just tragic. I mean, these two people could have gone on and married, you know, found other people and found something like real love rather than the insane, alcoholic, codependent relationship they had. So uh, now how many siblings do you have? Four. Well, three, three. I'm we're total four. Are you the oldest, the youngest, somewhere? The young, oh, the youngest. You're the youngest. So, yeah. what was it like for the four of you growing up? What was it like for you, you guys as children? It was battle. It was battle. There was what I call the outside game and the inside game. We had a, something of a public profile. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember mayor of Philadelphia. That's where we were from. Saying when I, I think about your father, I don't just think about him. I think about that family. And this happened uh, not by mistake. We were put on display. Mm-hmm. We were the perfect family. That was the outside game. The inside game is when the door closed on our house and the violence began and the screaming began and a finger was put in our face at very young saying no one must know Mm. what goes on outside this house. And that's a story of fortress mentality that I've heard 
a thousand times in our fellowship. Where secrecy is codified. Yeah. And you don't take anything that goes on in the family outside of the house. That's difficult. Right. We're talking about shame. Yeah. The, that, that, that's the installation of shame. We have something that we need to keep secret as a family. Shame, 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 shame. That must have been really confusing for you as a child with two, two different standards, one for the public consumption, one within the home. Yeah. How did you cope with that? And what, what were you told about why that was necessary? Or were you never told why? Our father was a deeply political man. He was, in fact, at the center of a political machine uh, that, that was monolithic mm -hmm. in one of America's largest cities. So, you know, there was not a presidential candidate that dared come through our city that didn't call our father as a courtesy or come by and see him. Mm -hmm. I often say I, I came from a family of privilege, certainly, but also power. But it created the inside game and the outside game. We had to keep up a front for the outside game. And then we had to endure the madness of the inside game. What crossed my mind just now was your dad was exuding power on the outside. But when he was at home, he was exuding force to force compliance. So you, there must not have been a whole lot of buy-in to the way he ran the family. No, we all knew it was bogus because we had seen the real thing, you know, in the inside game when the door closed. And then we went out and everything was perfect and everything was on display. We understood that it was integral to the success of the family that we had to keep this act up. Yeah. So implicit lying was just a part of the family fabric. Yeah. That must have been tough. How did you cope with that when you were a kid? Did you turn to other things to get some semblance of comfort in your life? It introduced me to some tools that I used until the day I met everyone in AA, hmm. which is tools of fantasy, mm -hmm. tools of diversion and distraction, exactly as you just mm -hmm. said, comforting tools. Yeah. And for me, largely, this was a, a life of fantasy. I, I was the youngest in my family. Both of my parents tried very hard to just ignore their responsibilities. They mm. were sorry that they got into this marriage. They were trapped in this marriage. Actually, my three siblings and I, just in the last year or two, have come to the, the conclusion that our father was gay. We've each come to this conclusion by ourselves. It was wild. We've each come to that our father was gay and he did not want to be in this marriage, but he was yeah. stuck. I understand why he needed this marriage as an escape. And as a cover. Yeah. Uh, the classic beard, uh, as they call it. Hey, I'm stuck now suddenly. Yeah, I've got this woman who was my way out, but it also means I'm stuck with her. And then when the first child came along, well, now I'm really stuck. This is, I think, one of the sources of our father's reach for anesthesia in his life, was he really did not want these kids. He didn't want this marriage, but he was saddled with it for the rest of his life because of... And the Irish Catholicism that just he felt locked him in to this marriage for the rest of his life. You know, I didn't need Catholicism or being Irish. My dad and mom were exactly the same way. My dad had some skeletons in his closet from the time he was a child that, I, you know, any any therapist looking at their relationship would say, these are two people who should never, ever yeah. have gotten together, much less had children together. Yeah. Yeah. And the minute the kids came, both were stuck and because of the old, the old-fashioned mores and uh, 
values about marriage, they stuck together until they both, you know, passed away a number of years ago. And uh, so it, I know exactly what you're talking about. I recognized relatively quickly in early recovery that the reason I needed anesthesia in my life mm-hmm. or used what other people use for fun and they can put it down naturally, but I used it for anesthesia was not that life was so difficult. I couldn't stand life. It's that I could not stand myself. I needed anesthesia to be me or to be what I had created of myself. And in that context, I can certainly understand my father's angst, you know, and, and his need for anesthesia. It was really clear among the four children that these two people were nuts. And this was not a normal life. We did that thing that kids do, which is you go over to dinner at other people's homes. Yeah. And suddenly you realize, oh, my God, this is peaceful at this table. They're asking questions. They're giving answers. And the answers are being listened to. And they're not, you know, it's et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This amazement watching the mother and father of my friends kiss each other. And actually look like they're enjoying that, that they're together. Uh, <laughs> this was <laughs> talking about a whole new world. Yeah. And of course, then I go back to my place and just, you know, it's just, you know, grand genial theater of, you know, just nothing but goblins and ghosts. I get that. Now, when you look at the way your siblings were treated, in my family, there were four of us. And by the time they got to me as the third the third born, uh, my dad and mom had already taken out on my older siblings an awful lot. And so by the time they got to me, I think that there was some, uh, you know, they were running out of gas in that way. And so my brother and sister got it much worse than I did. And then I got it bad enough that it was worse than my younger sister. What was it like for you with your with your siblings? Uh, the, the, the horror, the guilt of watching my eldest brother in particular get beaten on a weekly basis, you know, a belt buckles flying through the air, flesh, you know, of flesh and blood being scattered around, uh, the yelling and the screaming or the slapping the mother, my mother. So we're watching this, you know, and uh, understanding that I was getting away with a lot. I mean, I, you know, as the youngest, of course, the youngest is always has the easiest. You're off the radar, so to speak. Off the radar, but you're watching. You're off the radar, but you're watching the ra- you're watching the radar screen, and it's a horror show. And um, I never felt to blame. I understand that often kids do that, but that was not. I don't identify with that in particular in this case. Um, it was we. There was a solidarity among the four children. We understood that we that these people were crazy, and uh, and that all of us were just looking at our watches, including me, from about. Eight, nine years old. Nine years old, for some reason, I identify as the crystallizing moment where my eyes and ears open. I understood what was going on around me. And I understood that this word love was being bandied about. So I decided at nine years old, this is easy. Why hasn't everybody figured this out the way I just did? I'll do without love. But of course, in divorcing myself from love, I was also divorcing myself from trust. 
So I was, I, this all made perfect sense to a nine-year-old. I thought I was a genius. I thought I had life figured out. Mm -hmm. I'll just do without these things. Did your siblings, when they heard how you felt, did they do anything to try and, oh, not talk you out of it? But I mean, that's a pretty strong thing to say is I'm not going to believe in love or I don't believe in love anymore. Yes. I remember my sister. Uh, my two older brothers were at a certain certain age together. Then there was a gap of a few years. And then my sister and I were born. So I never hung out with my sister too much. But I do remember her sort of rounding on me once and talking to me very seriously as a child and saying, saying, don't you understand, Patrick, that you're letting something go in your life? She, she said, I see you doing this. Mm -hmm. And do you understand that you're going to be missing something? And no, I did not understand. Yeah. I didn't understand that a life without love and trust requires anesthesia. Yeah. So the anesthesia, let's talk about the anesthesia, because you're sober now almost 35 years from that anesthesia. What was the what was your your first some of your first experiences with the anesthesia? And how did you feel about yourself when you were using? I think in my early teens, I began keeping bottles of wine in my own room uh, and began drinking that mm. and found relief in that. Mm -hmm. uh, I would isolate in my own room, close the door, and mm -hmm. uh, uh, by and large, no one would bother me because no mm -hmm. one wanted to be bothered, you know, certainly not my parents. My parents were both downstairs. In a typical kind of reversal of alcohol in alcoholic families, my father actually adopted maternal duties. Mm -hmm. My mother was a lawyer, so my father actually kind of took control of the kitchen in our family because our mother couldn't boil water. Mm. And as a result, right, the kitchen was the one place my father knew he would never encounter my mother. Hmm. So he he took charge of the kitchen. And so there was this funny role reversal that I've heard in other alcoholic families, a father taking on maternal duties. You know, things just not making sense. So I knew all of that was going on in the household beyond my closed door. And I wanted mm -hmm. nothing to do with it. So I was very happy to close my door and uh, drink some wine, smoke some pot, and drift off into a world that I preferred to the world that was really in front of me. Were you ever caught at that? Were there ever any consequences from slipping up on that type of behavior for you? Well, because my father was an alcoholic, he knew he was in no position to be criticizing <laughs> my drinking. In fact, he enjoyed having the company. Really? But it, was one of, it was one of his most selfish things he did. Was you know He was happy to have me in my early teens join him in his drinking. It didn't even occur to me that this was inappropriate. I loved it. I was, yeah, I was drinking like a grown-up. I'm talking with my father. I've got him. I've got my father to myself. This mm. is what I want. I want my father to myself. We found this new thing in common, which is drinking. That is a very unusual story. As a way to get close to your father, that must have been quite a relief from everything that was going on. Well, you know, from about nine years old, I found myself looking at my watch I couldn't wait to be 16 because that's when you could work legally in my state. I couldn't wait till 18 because then I could vote. I couldn't wait till 21 because then I could drink legally. I could walk into a bar and drink legally. So I was looking at my watch 
for about a decade, patiently looking, waiting to get the heck out of this situation. Meanwhile, what kept the peace and was was that I had this thing in common with, with him and could get loaded with him and talk uh, about. How were the years in, in school, middle school and high school, with regard to your drinking? I was lucky. I've been lucky all my life. I've had a privileged life all my life. I was very lucky in school. I had gone to a very tight-arsed, kind of English-style boarding school here in America. Mm-hmm. And I hated it. And my my father allowed me to leave in the middle of it. And I instead went to a, the opposite. I went to a Quaker school. But here's the point, in a way that I was not in the least expecting. I choose to think that God brought to me a lovely experience of first love. Mm. Uh, I'm gay, and I I met my first boyfriend in prep school, and it was beautiful. It was a nice experience. I had a kind of bride's head revisited romance. There's something else about this chap I guess I ought to share here today, which is he's two years ahead of me. He's 36 or 37 years in our fellowship. That's That's a really sweet story and such a nice sentiment. Would you say that he was giving you those things that you needed growing up? We were giving each other, both of us were from crummy households. We were each other's escape. It was a very, very useful escape, very one that has really been validated as the years have gone by. And we didn't make life worse for each other in terms of misery loves company. We didn't go down with that. We went upward with that. We said, but let's have fun. Like, you know, let's try to make, a, you know, let's have fun together. Let's get away from our households. Let's get away from <laughs> that alcoholism. Of course, the, the problem was them, not us. Yeah. We were just two young guys having a good time. Uh, no, of course, we were already behaving alcoholically, although we didn't comprehend it. Did you go to college after high school? I did. I went to local university there, the local Ivy League university. The idea, again, I, I remind you, our father was a political man. So I, I had a life all planned out. I was meant to go to the, to the local Ivy League university, the local Ivy League uh, law school, and then continue a political career, city councilman, mayor, U.S. senator. Take over for your dad. There we are. And that was what it was meant to do. Uh, but I slammed on the brakes because I wanted to be an actor. There was a creative soul inside of me. And so I said, I'm sorry, I, this doesn't interest me, what you have planned for me. Our father said, well, you're on your own. And I said, OK, I'm on my own. Was it just that quick and simple? Or was this happening over a period of time until you finally had enough and you were out of there? I think fairly quick. But, but I mean, I had developed the plan in my head. I mean, I, you know, I was ready. New York was not foreign to me. It was just an hour and a half away. Sure. And so New York life and the subway system, you know, I knew exactly for my first day that I moved myself in 1980, that I moved to New York uh, huh. on my own as an adult, free of my family. I'll never forget the first night in New York. And I went out into the night by myself, feeling so free and having such agency. Mm-hmm. And I didn't do anything other than walk the streets, but I felt like I owned the city, you know? New York just has that way of kind of leading you where it wants you to go, and usually it's a great experience for me. Did either of your uh, older brothers, did any of them fulfill uh, your dad's wishes for a, uh, a legacy political family? My eldest brother, a, a United States Senate seat, was being held for, it was it was either one heavyweight faction of the state, in this case, us, <laughs> with 
Maya Elizabeth, or another very well-known politician had his own son that he wanted to sponsor into this position. As it was, uh, my eldest brother, being an alcoholic, uh, you know, told our father to go stuff himself and, and went off to the West Coast. How did your dad feel about that? Did you get any inkling of the upshot from his standpoint? Oh, yeah. My, my brother had let us all down. What's he doing in California? So, uh, but it was just rebellion. Our father understood it was rebellion. And uh, and I guess he, he thought he was just lost to us. And he was. He was lost to us for a long time. He went off to his own anonymous life. We all did. We all did. All four children took off. And three out of four of us have never had children. And I believe it's because our own family was so awful that we just decided we, we don't want to reduplicate this. Stop it in its tracks. I get that. So you get to New York in 1980. What was your drinking like at this point when you first got to New York? And how did it ramp up until maybe even the time you hit the doors of AA? I have two words for you. Studio 54. All right. <laughs> I was there. <laughs> At least once a week, I was there. My first job in New York, and I wanted to get into show business. And so I wanted a show business restaurant. Well, the ultimate show business restaurant in New York, and has been for almost 80 years, was the famous Sardi's on 44th Street. Uh, stumbled and fumbled. Actually, what am I saying? I lied my way into a job at Sardi's. I had never worked in a restaurant before in my life, but thanks to a privileged life, I, I had dined in some of the best restaurants in the world. Uh -huh. You know, I watched waiters operate. I took a job there, waiting tables, which I was delighted, a job I was delighted to have. I was making a fortune in cash. I was good at this job. I was charming. I, I took it seriously. I was on top of it. And I enjoyed giving good service. And I was very good. But at the end of the evening, the chef, and the chef was my best friend there because he had the cocaine. Four or five of us would take off. We would go down into Greenwich Village and to the jazz clubs. And we were restaurant royalty. Hmm. We couldn't buy a drink. The guys from Sardi's would walk in. Oh, the guys from Sardi's are here. Drink for free. What a lifestyle. Yeah, you wonder about drinking taking off. But finally, my uh, strategy worked out, which is a... Uh, show business heavyweight, mm -hmm. I had my eye on, who is a repeated customer, finally looked up at me and said, Patrick, I have a very strong suspicion that you're not going to be waiting tables for the rest of your life. What is it you would like to do? This being said to me by one of the world's most important and powerful agents in the biggest agency in the world at that time. And I said, uh, well, I, I think I'd like to be an agent. And she said, well, you must call me sometime. And at nine o'clock the next morning, I was on the phone. And she brought me into that agency and my career took off. It's a very glamorous type of lifestyle, isn't it? Well, that's what it, it appears to be. <laughs> yeah. What's it really like? Horrible. In what ways? In, in the culmination of my career, my professional career in the 1990s, I was awarded two Olivier Awards, which is their equivalent of the Tony Award, you know? Mm -hmm. You know, it's a big deal within the small world of the theater. And people slapping me on the back and saying, boy, Patrick, this must be just so, what a great culmination. Well, and what they didn't know is deep inside of myself, and I'm tasting the ashes in my mouth. Mm. You know, people think filmmaking is glamorous. Oh, my God, it's horrible. The, the, you mentioned modeling. That's just a meat market, a horrible meat market. 
You know, I, I can honestly say hand on heart, I've never, ever taken advantage of my position, ever. Yeah, I've done a lot of things wrong. I had a lot of things on my four-step that I'm rightfully ashamed of. Um, but that's one thing I never did. I never tried to importune young actors or any such thing. What was your drinking looking like while you were working? When you're in that position, you get invited to everything. The invitations pile up. The availability of free booze was just endless. And then, you know, later in the evening, other things. And it did me no favor. I mean, I thought, yes, I thought, I was leading a very glamorous life. It was the life I wanted. It was the life I dreamt of. But it was all floating on a sea of booze and cocaine and pot. And um, I suppose I must have looked like I was, you know, some, I don't know, go-getter who's riding the rocket of career. But I was a tumbleweed. I wasn't riding a rocket. I didn't know what was going to happen, left or right. I was too hungover to comprehend what was going on by day. When did you first notice or suspect that you were having a problem with your drinking and or experiencing consequences of your drinking? When I was fired from that agency, I lost my mooring and my identity. I loved being able to say I worked for that company at cocktail parties. You can imagine. But when I left that company, I lost some of my identity and some of that security that came with that knowing of that identity. Mm -hmm. That bought, by the way, that borrowed identity. And this was only what, a, a three or four years before you finally got sober? 1999. So, yes, yes. But the remaining years there, the, those last four or five years were just were, were bad news uh, because I lost my mooring. I was on my own. So, you were drinking and using uh, what, cocaine or pills? What, were you taking drugs along the way, or was most of your comfort around alcohol? Some alcohol, uh, cocaine, and, uh, and and marijuana. I did uh, take a tap dance into crystal meth, I think, twice. And it was so fucking horrible. It was it, so nasty. It, I mean, my God. I, as I say, other pretty. I've tried almost everything other than heroin. When you were um, on the street, so to speak, after your termination... What did you do and how did alcohol factor into the next segment of your life? This began a very quick progression into worse drinking, but it also began a progression back into a life of fantasy again. Since my life was, uh, things weren't working, I was trying all kinds of things. I was taking jobs that I thought were beneath me. I was doing like restaurant PR, which is the absolute slum bucket of the PR business. Did you ever take any jobs acting? Well, now, my friend, now, you, now you're on to something that is one of the sadnesses of my life. I am an actor, but I've been an actor without a play all my life. It's something in me that I smothered. That's the reason I became an actor's agent, was because it, it was somewhat related to this work, but it felt safer. It was on the other side of the desk. I could wear a suit. I had somebody answering my phone. I, you know, that felt secure. There was a regular paycheck. And I'd rather be on that side of the desk than on the side of all these poor actors who were continuing to wait tables and so on. Is that old joke, you know, 
people say, you know, oh, hi, how are you meeting somebody in New York? You know, oh, I'm an actor. Oh, really? Which restaurant? As they say, I, I recognize that I smothered something in me. I was unwilling to take that risk. And this mm-hmm. is an important word in terms of my current recovery. 35 right. years later, is my willingness to take a risk today. Mm-hmm. Why? Because I'm no longer afraid. Fear, which my dear sponsor have taught me, he, he waved his hand over all of my paperwork that I had presented to him in the fourth step, and we discussed in the fifth step. And he said, all of this is reduced to one word, fear. That is the exact nature. We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying AA Recovery interviews, I invite you to check out my latest audiobook, Alcoholics Anonymous, the story of how more than 100 men have recovered from alcoholism. This is the word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of the first edition of the big book, published in 1939. It's a relaxing yet meaningful and engaging way to listen to the big book anytime, anyplace. Have a free listen at Audible, iTunes, or Amazon. While you're there, search for my other audiobook, Lost Stories of the Big Book. Thirty original stories from the first and or second editions missing from the third and fourth editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's also available from Amazon as a Kindle book or in paperback if you'd like to read along. You're going to love it. And we're back. The other life that you decided to lead, uh, the, the gay lifestyle or whatever, how did that affect you when you first acknowledged it to yourself? From a very early age, early teens, certainly, I became aware that okay. I'm gay. I became aware that I'm gay. Suddenly you realize I'm, I'm kind of responding to young men differently than my other friends are. Mm-hmm. And so suddenly I realize I've got this problem. I've got, I need something that I need to keep a secret of. Mm. Life of secretiveness seems to be interwoven, at least with my alcoholic life. It was in your family. Exactly. And uh, so I was well used to keeping secrets. So this was Mm -hmm. nothing, okay, I know how to do this. So I had a secret to keep. I was closeted for good, even even despite being in a, you know, in a business where a lot of gay people are. Sure. Uh, It's understood creative world. Uh, I still wanted to keep my secret. I still wanted to. Uh, I was very self-conscious of the way I spoke, the way I, I walked. Mm-hmm. I was self-conscious, uh, careful about the way I crossed my legs. Oh, my mm-hmm. gosh. Maybe that's not what I'm supposed to do. How about in the way you drank? Uh, well, the way I drank was abandoned. I mean, that that's when all the, you know, the, all everything I just said was off. And I could stand at a bar, well-dressed. Yeah, and I knew how to attract. You know, I, I, I knew how to manipulate people and get what I wanted sexually. Yeah. Yeah, I enjoyed all of that. Sounds a little bit shallow, though, doesn't it? Oh, well, of course. I mean, yeah. to say that this is my life. And really, in fact, nothing is going on in my life. I mean, I think it's all going on. City of 54, baby. ba 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 and in fact, I've got nothing going on in my life. And of course, part of me knows that. But I, you know, I want to just not pay attention to that. So again, the alcoholic tools of deflection and distraction. So when did those tools stop working for you? What was it like right before you got into AA? And what was the turning point or the bottom that you hit? As my drinking became more and more of a problem, the hangovers now have become several times a week. You know, I knew I was running from something. Mm-hmm. My life was getting darker. The inside of my head 
I could feel a darkness on the inside of my head. And I was experiencing alcoholic blackouts and brownouts, despite the fact that I was months away from my last drink. Mm-hmm. Now, I have yet to come into AA at this point. I was trying to manage this on my own, of course. You know, I don't need any help. I'll, I'll figure this out the way I figured everything else out in my life on the inside of my head. Mm-hmm. And so I tried to figure this out. And, uh, well, it was, that wasn't working very well. And uh, I was a binge drinker. So I knew that I could go a week or two without thinking about a drink, at least consciously. But then something would provoke me, and the cow would jump over the moon. As Rodney Dangerfield used to say, next thing I knew, it was stupid time. (laughs) Uh, And it was stupid time. Um, And suddenly I was, you know, being disgraceful in my sexual life, doing things with people that I would not want to introduce to my mother. You know, all that shameful stuff. Shame, 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 shame. Deeper, 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 deeper. And of course, the more shame you have, the more you need to drink to try and drown the shame. And the more you need alcoholic brownouts and blackouts, sober alcoholic blackouts, sober brownouts. Yeah. So finally, the day came. I had to go back and kind of recap some old business. I walked into the office of a very senior executive, a partner in one of the big uh, uh, accounting firms. And I had gone into a brownout. Now, I don't, I'm not drinking. And you know, I'm months away from my drink. So what, what substance are we talking about that I'm drunk on? The substance of pure arrogance, the hmm. substance of pure delusion. And I walked into this man's office and I came up out of my brownout because of a hand was coming toward my face. Mm-hmm that I suddenly realized it was my hand. Mm. And I was holding up three fingers, and I was saying to this distinguished man in his 70s, this is the third time I'm telling you this. And he had that look on his face of someone who knows he's in in a room with a crazy person Mm. and doesn't know what might happen next. This very senior man looked very scared. Mm -hmm. And I, I I saw that, and I... I withdrew from the office. I got the heck out of there as humbly as I could. I knew something bad had just happened that I couldn't explain to myself. I walked up past Bloomingdale's department store, a very busy neighborhood at mm-hmm. lunchtime. People, and I stopped dead in my tracks and I looked down at my shoes. People were brushing past me. I didn't mm-hmm. notice them. I paid no attention. And I knew that something in my life had come to a halt. And I knew that something else was going to begin, specifically the program of Patrick Anonymous. This negotiated program Mm -hmm. was going to stop. And I made a decision. Those first three words of our third step and all the empowerment that it brings. Mm -hmm. I made a decision. This crap, my crap, is going to stop. I'm going to start doing AA their way. I'm going to stop saying no. I'm going to stop saying, oh, I may be back next week. I'm going to stop saying, that's really interesting. Yeah, I got to work on that. So you had been going, you had experience going to AA before that? On a negotiated basis, you know? Right. I was was going to meetings of the better dressed. I was going to meetings like the meeting where you and I met. Were you going to learn how to drink like a gentleman? What, What were you expecting when you went to AA? I had no expectations. All I knew was the couple of meetings that I was choosing to go to had good addresses. Uh, 
or they were in the basement of a high society church. So let me check that out. And you were sober at this time on your own? Correct. So you're sober on your own, you're dry, you're, you're going to AA meetings. What did you think about them when it got down to the topics and the meat of the program beyond the suits and glamour? I remember watching a man speaking, a guy of some distinction, and as he was speaking to the AA meeting, he started pacing back and forth rather than standing in place at a lectern. Oh. He started pacing, but he said, I want to show you how I paced and paced, asking to be willing to be willing, to hmm. just be willing to be willing. And boy, a bell went off in my head because hmm. I had been doing that, praying to be willing to be willing. So you had asked your higher power to help you make that decision or to make it for you and then let you realize it? Yes, I think that's a, that's fair to say. So you, you came in on January... Um, January 9th, 1989. And you'd already been to AA, so you weren't a newcomer, so did, did they know that you were brand new? Well, I was keeping everybody at an arm's length. That's not unusual. Of course, I did meet people I knew. Yeah. Oh, Patrick. Oh, Patrick, we've been <laughs> holding a seat for you. One guy said, I hated him for saying it. How dare yeah. he? How dare he know my disgrace? How dare he know my shame? Yeah. How dare he know that I needed help from somebody and he couldn't solve a problem on my own? You know, and, and uh, you know, as they say, I was, I wasted my, well, I wasted time. I, I was going to what I call meetings of the better crest. When did you finally knuckle down? Uh, and what did that knuckling down look like? I met John clearly, uh, an icon in Upper East Side, New York, I, uh, recovery. People will still talk about him. There are people, three or four people in the meeting where you and I met uh, who, yeah. who would tell you about this guy and uh, swear by him. I asked him to be my sponsor, and to my astonishment, he said yes. He stunned me. One of the first things he said is, Patrick, we won't be friends here. We'll be friendly, but we won't be friends. Yeah. And that was a discernment that fascinated me. It almost took my breath away. He, you know, he understood that this is service. This is not just chit-chat time. Yeah. This is about being of service to somebody else. He knew that. I didn't know that, but he knew that. Now, when did he get you started working the steps? John got me through all 12 steps in my first 90 days. Wow, that's great. He did this Akron style. John taught me, we're going to do this with a gentle momentum. In other words, we're meant to get pushed through these things. I had time on my hand. Yeah. John was the photo editor of the New York Times. He had a thing or two to do every day. And I could always tell the moment he answered the phone, I knew when he was on deadline because he took the call, but he was, you know, frantically, you know, suddenly, hello, hello. You know, he was, you know, okay, just tell me what's going on, Patrick. You know, uh, and then other times much more relaxed. So from the very start, you were being taught how to be a yeah. sponsor by John while he was helping take you through the steps. And then you're sponsoring other people in the same way. As you look back over the last 35 years, can you think of some of the milestones, you know, in your life that as a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, you handled differently than you would have had you not had the program? I began pretty quickly, thanks to the step work, to comprehend my own adolescent desire for attention. Hmm. In fact, my demand for it, not just my desire for it, my demand for attention. I was aware of my desire to dominate a social situation, mm -hmm. whether it was a dining table 
I learned how to dominate a dining table when I was nine years old back in my family's dining table, screaming and yelling, pounding the table, and so on and so forth. So I got sober over Christmas time, uh, well, January. One of New York's leading hostesses invited me to come to a black tie dinner at her home. Now, the reason I'm sharing this is because this is just the kind of situation that since I was nine years old, I wanted to be in. I saw these things in magazine ads, people at cocktail parties, people at sophisticated New York, you know, dinners. I wanted all this. Uh, I was invited, as they say, in, in within my first couple of months. And it was exactly, I passed on a lot of these invitations because I knew I needed to reorganize my whole head about these things and their importance to me, their bogus you know, importance to me. So I decided I'm going to practice different behavior tonight. I'm going to be quiet and I'm going to listen at this dinner table. There were about 10 of us at a big round dinner table. The foreign minister of Israel was at the dinner table at the time. And I mean, that's what the dinner was like, you know. I was being quiet and I was listening to my left and my right. And that's all I was doing. And finally, the hostess, after much discussion, suddenly said, Patrick, she was looking right across from me. She said, Patrick, you've been so quiet this evening. What do you think about what we've been talking about? I took a deep breath and I took a moment because the moment was about, Patrick, what's it going to be now? It's bi you've got a binary choice, old bullshit or new truth. And to my astonishment, I, said, I sort of did a share like an AA share. I mean, I didn't talk about alcoholism, but I talked about real stuff. Yeah. When we moved on to the next room for coffee, every person, including the foreign minister of Israel, found before the end of the evening came over to me and said, what you said tonight just stopped the dinner cold. And it was the most beautiful thing. And, oh, what you said, and, I mean, all this kind of thing. It, it would, by adopting new behavior, I was getting exactly what I always wanted. Isn't that amazing? And I had dropped what I thought I needed to do to get what I always wanted. So I'll bet you were pretty anxious to try that out again. Yeah, listening. Listening for a change. How about that? Did you find that that changed the way you shared in AA? John taught me that my... I use a sponsor. I do a step 10 to, you know, to organize. I mean, once I reach step 10. Well, he taught me that step 10 is a compendium of all the previous nine steps. It's what I call the tool belt. It's a tool belt yeah. with loops and snaps and buckles in it, in which I can assemble all these new tools. Uh, yeah. It helps me organize, as, as the step four did, the first inventory. It helps me to organize my thinking and to see things as they truly are not how as I want them to be. With that, I separate feelings from facts. The 10th sep step separates feelings from facts. I can see the facts of my life separate from my feelings. I have never been able to do this hmm. in my life before. My feelings always overwhelmed the facts of my life. Here, the 10th step separates feelings from facts. And then my feelings I take into the 11th step. Yeah. I go to God and say, I'm hurting, I'm hurting. <laughs> please help, please comfort me. <laughs> right. And he does. He comforts me. And he does. And he does. And then, of course, 
then with that fearlessness, based on who my higher power tells me I am, and I use that source of information as my only source of information about who I am, mm -hmm. I've stopped worrying about what you think about me, and I've stopped listening to the inside of my own head. And I listen to one source only, which is God in the 11th step, who tells me my identity, who tells me my esteem, who tells me my value. And then with all of that package, then I take it into the 12th step. And I take all this loveliness and I put it on the street. That self-realization is a big one. And, and I, I love the way that story is just very colorful about the dinner and everything so emblematic of how we can make a big difference in other people's lives just by being ourselves. Yes. The, the our, quote, ourselves that has been molded and shaped by working good programs. Let me ask you, as we wrap up here, Patrick, um, what kind of roadblocks or barriers have you run into over the 35 years that were tough for you and, and might have challenged your, your overall desire to, to keep, keep on on? It's possible, Howard, that I've had exactly what you're talking about. And I've had both the tools to put the past behind me, combined with just simply time passing that I don't remember. Yeah. My... My life today is lived in the present, not in the past. Mm -hmm. My behavior yeah. today, my instincts and my thinking are no longer dictated by the patterns of the past. Mm -hmm. uh, including my past in AA and including mm -hmm. in my past mm -hmm. experiences of the steps. You know, step four defined for me what I have done, but step seven defined who I am. And those are two very different mm -hmm. things. Yeah, I've done some mm -hmm. really shitty things. And there it all is in my step four. But then the great moment, the magic happens in step seven, where I am washed clean of this, where I am forgiven, and where my life has been redeemed. And mm -hmm. I need to wake up to this and listen to this and feel this and start acting like this. Somebody whose life has been redeemed, mm -hmm. whose step four has been forgiven, and step mm -hmm. seven has washed me clean. I call it the Avion shower, the shower of Avion <laughs> water in step seven, yeah. where I'm washed clean of this muck. But I've yeah. got to start acting like that guy yeah. who's yeah. clean of this show, you know, and, and yeah. who's been forgiven yeah. and whose life has been redeemed. I've got to live a redeemed life. And I do today. I do. Yeah, and it's so it's so evident, and and that's such a beautiful way to to wrap things up. Here is that uh, feedback you've given is the kind that people who are new to the program or maybe they're slacking in the program, it gives them the hope and the encouragement. I think to know that you don't necessarily have to rattle off all the difficulties that you've encountered. You're in the solution. Mm -hmm. As long as I have these tools, as long as I'm willing to work the steps, as long as I'm willing to acknowledge my humanity, the problems I've encountered don't really amount to very much. Yeah. My life today is like a dessert course to my whole life. And, uh, you know, I'm not a saint. <laughs> I'm not a saint. A couple of years ago, I popped off at somebody, like a, a grocery store manager. Yeah. Uh, and I there I was. I was that idiot yelling at the top of my lungs, instructing this man yeah. on merchandising that, you know, yeah. I know nothing about. 
And but, however, can I please point out to all of us <laughs> that that happened a couple right. of years ago, and nothing since. You know, I haven't been that idiot since. And by the way, of course, I went back the next day and cleaned it. Yeah, that's but, what yeah, I was yeah, waiting yeah, for. Yeah, yeah I figured. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and because and because I had popped off in front of a lot of other people when I encountered him, he was standing there with some delivery guys. You know, tough guys, rough guys for rough work. Yeah. Uh-huh. And I walked up to him and say, I owe you an apology and I want to apologize to you. I should never have spoken to you that way. The looks on the faces of these other these <laughs> three guys, like, you know, they weren't used to hearing that. I just want to encourage anybody who cares to, uh, to consider this is to take AA at its word in writing. Again, the things I said a moment ago. A perfect release yeah. from alcoholism, an, an unshakable foundation for life. Mm -hmm. The problem will, has been removed. It does not exist for us. These are things that are ahead for you, if they are ahead for you. And if, and if you're living them, please live them and take AA at its word. I can have this re perfect release. And this idea that I'm so sorry when I hear people say I wake up in the morning and that goblin is at the end of my bed and I'm scared to the people who are decades and they still talk about they're so afraid, including afraid of alcohol. I don't understand yeah. it. I don't understand how they've been sponsored. Well, fortunately, my feeling about that, because I noticed that too, and um, I have to be be careful because one of the places I can be the most judgmental without really meaning to or be the most judgmental cloaking it in, I care so much about this person, this is why I'm feeling this way, is that that's just the way they're living mm -hmm. their life and I, I can't get in there and live their life for them. I heard a great saying the other day, Patrick. He said, um, I, I can explain this to you, but I can't understand it for mm -hmm. you. And I Very love good. that. It, it just it, it hit it hit home as well as everything else that you've said today. And it's been a marvelous time spent with you seeing what a great program that you're not only working for yourself, but you're taking out into the world. I think AA needs people like you. They need people like me. They need anybody who's willing to be that people is who we need. And so. I just love that you're doing a first-class job here. You know, you're doing a complete job. This is a very well-produced show. I've listened to some of them. It's beautifully produced. You take it seriously. You do it fully. You don't do it half-assed for people who did everything half-assed and slip-shot. And no, you're doing this completely. Thank you. Thank you. And as I tell all my guests at the end, I love you and I admire and honor your program and your desire to live a life of AA. And uh, again, many, many thanks for doing this. Thank you. Good job. Well, my friends, that's a wrap for today's episode of AA Recovery Interviews. I want to thank my guest, Patrick O., for sharing his story. And thank you for tuning in. Of course, you can listen to all the interviews by following this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, Amazon, and other podcast providers. Or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com where you can listen to every episode of AA Recovery Interviews. And if you want to contact me directly with any comments or suggestions, simply email howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com.
By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all General Service Office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs, and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA, that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.